The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. I wonder in what situation that you find yourself in this morning. Maybe you've come in here and you're on top of the world. There's nothing that could upset you. Or, or perhaps you're on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. You're in a moment of deep sadness. Maybe you're thrilled with your life and you're thinking to yourself, how can it get any better than this? I don't know. Or maybe you're battling the demons of depression. And this church, or any church like it, is the last place that you want to be. As humans... And that includes Christians. We have fickle emotions, don't we? We could receive mountains of encouragement and constantly be lifted up and be prayed for and to be encouraged and to be talked to and to be heartened and, and all kinds of things. And even if we have all of those mountains of encouragement, one discouraging word is all it takes to bring us down into the depths of despair. Or perhaps one bout with the flu, and we think God has abandoned us, and he's brought us here to kill us. There's no way I'm going to live through this. As I was thinking through this passage this week, a verse in 2 Corinthians came to mind. It's 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. And Paul says this to the church at Corinth, For all the promises of God... Find their yes in Him, that is Jesus Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Now Paul's intention in that verse is to encourage the church at Corinth. He, he wants to build them up. He wants them to understand that any and every promise that God has ever made finds its yes finds its solution, finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And, and I think that not only did Paul write that for the encouragement of the church at Corinth, but he wrote that for the encouragement of you and me, that God preserved it by his pen for 2,000 years that we would get to the point this day in our worship service and read that text in relation to this passage that we're going to be talking about this morning. That we would see this tremendous promise that is sitting before us that God gives to King David and that we, as a New Testament church community who worship the name of Christ, would come to the name of Christ and go, every promise that God has ever made finds its yes in Christ. That this passage that we're reading in a text that is thousands of years old to a king we've never met, to a culture we've never lived in, that that promise that God made would be preserved through the ages, that we would read it, that we would read it in relation to the words that Paul says to the church at Corinth and say, yes, this causes us to want to worship Christ. So that's our goal today is to not only receive encouragement and to be encouraged in whatever state that we're in, but to actually receive our encouragement because of what Christ has done. Our goal as Christians 
is to really look at who Jesus is and praise His name because of what He's done. And I think if we understand this text the way we should be understanding this text, that's exactly what will happen, is that we'll come to praise the name of Christ. This passage that's staring us in the face this morning is what's commonly referred to as the Davidic covenant, meaning it's God's covenant or His promise with David. There is the Davidic part. Covenant is a promise. It's very creative, I know, but it's very straightforward. It's the Davidic covenant. And it's basically one long promise that God makes to King David, who is king over the Jews. For my money, this passage right here is probably the most important passage in the Old Testament. There's a lot of important passages, and that's difficult to say with a text that we know is inerrant and infallible. But this passage in the Old Testament is probably where all the lines of the Old Testament are leading to and going from. This passage is tremendously important for not only us as Christians, but even if we go back before Christ to a Jewish community who is serving under King David. It's the reason that so many prophets in the Old Testament will refer back to this promise and will encourage Jews based on this promise in this text that we're reading this morning. It's the reason so many New Testament passages will refer back to the Davidic covenant. It's the reason the New Testament opens in the Gospel of Matthew with the genealogy of Jesus Christ going straight through David is because of this passage right here. So that said, understanding what's being said here, what's being communicated here, what's being set up for God's people here is important for your understanding of the entire New Testament. It's important for your understanding of who Christ is. And if we understand it rightly, then it will be the source of immense encouragement if you're in the midst of despair. And if you're at the highest of highs, if you're on top of the world, and you don't know how it could get any better than this, this passage will make it even better. All right? That's a lot of promises, isn't it? (laughs) I just realized I put myself on the hook for a whole lot of things, and I hope I can deliver on that. But I want you to remember what's happened in the context of this passage that we're in. 2 Samuel 7, 1-17. In the context of what's happened just before that, remember David has been crowned king over all of Israel. And that's no small feat because God has changed from Saul and his whole family to an entirely different family in David. He has anointed David. He has selected David. He has crowned him king over Israel. And when he came to the throne... Only the one tribe, Judah, actually acknowledged him as king. The rest of the tribes went with a son of Saul, Ishbosheth. Well, eventually Ishbosheth died, and now all of Israel is coming under King David, and they're submitting to him as the crowned authority, as God's king over God's people. All right. So then David's first agenda was to go to Jerusalem, to the city of Jerusalem, and kick out the Jebusites and establish a capital city where God would be worshipped. So he kicked out the Jebusites, and he established his palace there in Jerusalem. 
And then we saw last passage where he then said, well, okay, well, the capital city where I'm living, where my palace is built, this is also the city where God should be worshipped. So he goes and he grabs the Ark of the Covenant, which is a special box set aside for worship of God, where God has, has consecrated this box. He has established his presence with this box. He has set the rules and the boundaries for this box. He has ordained that this Ark, this box... Be where not only his presence dwells, but where the high priest would go before him and make atonement for the sins of the nation once a year. So this is a very important piece of furniture in the tabernacle. So David has brought this in, and he has covered it with a tent. And, and he's thinking, you know, a tent just doesn't seem suitable for God to be in, for us to worship the one true and living God. And so he's going to do something about it. But you see, in the process of trying to do something about it, he's going to learn the first thing that we see in our text this morning, which is God is not a God who is lacking in anything. God is not a God who is lacking in anything. So David's next step is an obvious one. Look there in verses 1 to 3 with me. It says this, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart. Notice, First, that we're two chapters into David's reign, and already we find this statement in verse 1 that says, God had given David rest from all his surrounding enemies. Now, this isn't just a throwaway line. We might be tempted to just read past it because it's sort of an introductory part to this passage, but this is actually an incredibly profound statement in the text. Do you understand what it means to be the littlest, most insignificant of peoples whom God created out of the people of the world, called Abraham, to be his? Then his people went into slavery in Egypt. He led them out. He led them through the wilderness for 40 years and into prime real estate. Think about that for just a second. Small Israel, tiny little tribe in the Middle East, insignificant slaves in Egypt. He leads out and they waltz into Times Square and take over. This is prime real estate in the ancient world, the promised land. And they walk right in and take up residence. You understand that? But then not only have they done that, their time there at the beginning was fraught with controversy. There's battles on all sides. There's the Philistines. There's the Jebusites. There's all kinds of ites that are around them that are fighting against them in, their, in the promised land. And what do we find two chapters into David's reign? But they not only occupy the whole land, they have no more enemies. No one would come and encounter David on the battlefield. Do you see the significance of this first verse, God had given them rest from all their enemies. It's a profound statement. And so what happens as a result of that? Well, 
If you look at God's promises that he's already begun fulfilling to, to his people Israel through David, is that he's given them rest. If you look at what those promises mean in Deuteronomy 12, verses 10 to 11, it says this. This is Moses talking to Israel before they actually get to the promised land. So this is back some years ago. He says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. So, so let's just take an inventory of what's being said here in Deuteronomy. In relation to the passage that we're in right now, David is, is sitting there in his palace of cedar, in his hot tub, and he's looking out on his balcony over all the land that is his, that the Lord has, has given to him. Perhaps Nathan the prophet is there too. They're, they're rejoicing together in the hot tub. And he looks out from his balcony, and as he looks out, his eye falls on this tent that houses the Ark of the Covenant. And no doubt, as he smells the planks of cedar in the mansion that is his, he thinks to himself, how is it that, that I'm sitting here in the lap of luxury?" in this massive palace, and I look out at the place where we should be, as Deuteronomy commands us, now bringing our offerings, and here the ark that holds the presence of God, that allows us to come and enter into the presence of God. How is it that that's in a tent? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. I'm living like a king, and God, who has given me all of this, is living like a hobo. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. So he tells Nathan his intention. And Nathan, who's agreeing with him, who's seen what God has done for David, gives him the thumbs up. Hey, go do what is in your heart after all. You are a man after God's own heart. Go and, and, and do what you're thinking. I, I like the idea. I like the intention. But then... God gets a chance to speak. It's amazing how even godly men like Nathan might make a decision without even thinking about what does God have to say about this. And so God intervenes in verse 7 with a dream in the middle of the night. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4 to 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving around, uh, about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Notice what God is saying here. David's intention, by all accounts, seemed to be of the, the purest motives. And God, through the prophet Nathan, stops him in his track. David says, I'll build you a house. And God says, no, you won't. But I, but I want it. Stop. Did I ask you to do that? 
I didn't ask you to do that. What does that tell you? First of all, it tells us a, a whole bunch of things. But, but first and foremost, it tells you God is calling the shots. David, as high on the hog as he is living, in the palace that God has brought him to, and the people that God has given to him, and the land that he's given, and the rest that he's given, he's still not calling the shots. God is calling the shots. You see, he says to him, I'm not in a tent because I lack the motivation to build a, something more suitable for me. I'm not in a tent because, well, I really wanted to be, but, you know, I just, I don't know, couldn't find anybody to build it. I'm not any, in a tent because I lack anything. I'm in a tent because I choose to be in a tent. There is some confusion that we might get when we come to this text that says God, the God of the universe, is contained in this tent. That this is his permanent dwelling. That this is the place where he lives and this is the place where he is visited. And God is sure to say, no, I am visiting my people. This is a symbol of my visitation of my people, of my dwelling amongst them. There is something about the tent, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant that says to all the people Israel, I am here in the trenches with you. I still dwell in unapproachable light, but I have chosen to make myself approachable. That's what the tabernacle says. That's what the tent says. But it says, I am calling the shots. But second, and, and probably more importantly, it says that God is not needing David to provide anything to him because he's not a little g God that is lacking in anything. God does not need David to provide him anything because he is not a little g God who is lacking he is telling David through the prophet Nathan, just, just stop right there. Before you think that you are providing me anything, be sure we understand I don't need anything from you. I don't require anything from you. Now, I don't think this is God's mean-spirited rebuke to David. I think it's just a gentle reminder to David who he is and who God is. I don't know about you, but I'm comforted by God's reminder to David and the preservation of God's reminder through the prophet Nathan throughout all of Scripture that God is not needing you, that God does not need me. I don't know if you've ever gotten up on Sunday morning and come into worship and felt cold-hearted, do you know what I mean by that? Where you come in and you just feel cold. You sing the songs that are on the screen and, and there's, there's nothing there in your heart. You just don't feel it. And the words seem kind of somewhat meaningless. Not that you don't know that they have a meaning, but that you, 
you don't, it's hard to dwell on them and you, you can't, you find yourself distracted by a number of different things. And then you hear maybe the pastor or me or somebody else say or read from scripture that, that worship is what is due to God. We, we come and we praise God for who he is and, and for his worth and for all the things that, that God is to us. We come and praise him and we, we come to rejoice because of the sacrifice that he gave to us in Christ. And while all those things are true, you still feel this, this just void inside that says, I'm just, I'm cold and I'm just kind of going through the motions. It, it is helpful to know that God is not depleted of worship, that you're not filling up something that is lacking from God, that if you leave here and you feel that cold void, that you didn't praise God, that He's not up in heaven wringing His hands, going, Well, now what will I do? That's not the relationship that we have with him. Or perhaps there's times during the week where you wake up late and you don't get to spend time with the Lord. You don't go to the Lord in prayer. You don't read your Bible and you don't, you know, do those spiritual disciplines that are for our good. And you end up feeling like, well, my relationship with the Lord is just frayed. And, and I'm pretty sure he's mad at me, maybe. I don't know. But for some reason, I feel like he's, he's distant. It's helpful to know God is not sitting in heaven going, I just don't know what I'm going to do with this guy. You know? I mean, as many times as I, I give him this, many copies of scriptures I put in his house, I, it just seems like he won't open it. God's not wringing his hands, waiting on something from you as though he needed anything. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Acts 17, 24, and 25 when he's preaching to the people in Athens there in the Areopagus. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in a temple, in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now there's no doubt we owe God worship because He is King. But you understand that your worship to Him is for your good. It's a blessing to you. In the same way that this tabernacle dwells there outside of David's palace, God is communicating to you through His Word that He has come to you. You're not providing God Things that he is missing. God has come to you. The worship that you owe him is to your benefit. It's for your good. God's not up in heaven saying to the angel Gabriel, how's the worship supply lately? How are the tithes coming in? Are, is the offerings, are they, are they there? He's not a God who is lacking in anything. So David learns that instead, God is a God of provision. God is a God of provision. In response to David wanting to provide for God, look at what God tells him. First, look at what God reminds him of there in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off 
all your enemies from before you. You understand what he's saying here? I have provided for you up to this point. I have taken you from the pasture to the palace, from pauper to prince. I am the one that has elevated you to this lofty position. I am the one that has given to you. I am the one who has been your provider. I am the one who has opened your eyes to your need of worship for me. I am the one who has brought you to this place. I am the one who has humbled you. That silence that you hear around you, that silence that is deafening because your enemies are not attacking your city walls, that silence is because of me. It's not because of you. So how does this relationship work? Well, he goes on to give eight promises to David. And I want you to look in this next passage, starting in verse 10, how many times God says, I, my, or me. I, my, or me. And I'm going to try to emphasize them as I read. Verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that uh, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom forever." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." So this is a a covenant, a promise that God has made. There is more here in this passage than we could uncover in a hundred sermons. And I've got one, all right? So just understand that there are a lot of things that we could dive into and spend weeks on that we're not going to. But this is a covenant that God is making with David. But in this covenant, there are all kinds of hyperlinks, if you will. If you're familiar with a web page, you read down, you get the little hyperlinks got underlined, you click on it, and it takes you to another web page. There are about a thousand hyperlinks within this passage that go to all different places of Scripture, New and Old Testament. And there are a lot of links in this passage dating all the way back to the first promise that God made to Abraham all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. There are another creative name back in Genesis chapter 12 all the way to 17 where God makes promises to Abraham. And he's redoubling down, if you will, on the promise that he made to Abraham here with David. He hasn't forgot about what he promised to Abraham. In fact, he's extending all the promises that he made to Abraham through King David. And he's narrowing the focus of all of those promises that he made to Abraham down to one single line the line of David. And in this passage, God makes eight promises to David, and I want you to see them. 
First, he promises to make for David a great name there in verse 9. He promises to make him a great name there in verse 9. Now, this is also what he promised to Abraham. You remember this back in Genesis where he promised Abraham, look, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make you a great line. Well, now he's coming down to David and he's saying, your line will be the line that will be great. Your name will be lifted high amongst your people. Second, he promises to appoint a place for his people in verse 10. A place for his people there in verse 10. Now, this is another promise that he has made to Abraham. He told them, your people are going to be wandering. They're going to be slaves in Egypt, but I'm going to make them a place. I'm going to bring them here in this place. And now he's telling David, I'm renewing that commitment that I made to Abraham. I am going to give to you a place. It's going to be a permanent dwelling for your people. He promises, third, to give them rest from all their enemies. Verse 11. Well, I, I, I thought he had already given him rest. You see, God is not, the, the kind of rest God has in mind for David's people is not temporary rest. What he has in mind for them is permanent rest. Rest that cannot be taken away. Rest that will be irrevocable. Rest that will never fade. So he tells them, I'm going to give them rest. This is the kind of rest that was something like what they had felt in Joshua first when they went into the land. And now it's being felt in David and that they have no enemies. Well, his intention is to remove all enemies from ever possibly ever being able to attack his people. Fourth, he promises to give David offspring after him. Verse 12, to give him offspring after him. Not just an offspring, not just to have a kid, but to actually have a male offspring. Why was it going to be a male offspring? Because the kingdom was going to be handed to this person. I want you to just pause for just a second. I want you to think about that. The promise from God to David is that you will always have a male offspring. In a, in a day and age where infant mortality was probably 50 to 70% even, to promise not just that you will have a kid and that you will always have a kid, but that you will always have a male to sit on the throne. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty distinct promise. That's an extensive promise. But you will have an offspring. Fifth, he promises to establish the kingdom of that offspring forever. Meaning that even if there are enemies to raise up around you, that offspring will still have a place on the throne over my people. No contenders. That's a significant promise. Seventh, he promises to be a father to David's offspring. That, In other words, in verse 14, God will personally see to this offspring and protect this offspring. That he is going to take stewardship of this offspring to raise him and to ensure that David's kingdom lasts forever. And eighth, he promises to discipline him when he commits iniquity. God is personally going to correct David's whole line when they sin, and they will sin spectacularly, and he will do that correction. Eight promises that he gives to David in this covenant, and he intends to fulfill every single one. 
So this covenant doesn't change the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis to make a special people. But what it does is it narrows the focus from the big promise of Abraham to the entire people of Israel down to a specific line, the line of David, who will always have a king on the throne. But do you understand there's a reversal happening here? There's a switch that's been made in this passage. At the beginning, David is wanting to build God a house meaning a palace, a temple, a place where God can be worshipped. By the end of the passage, God is building David a house. Stop right there, David. You don't provide anything for me. I'm the provider in this relationship. And the provision that I'm making is I'm going to build you a house, you a dynasty that will last forever, a kingdom that will last forever. In other words, not only is God not lacking in anything, but quite the opposite, He is a God of provision. I'm your caretaker. I'm building your house. So in verse 13, God tells David that one of David's sons, he says, shall build a house for my name and I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, David is going to have a son and that son is going to be named Solomon. And Solomon in 1 Kings is going to build a temple for God there in Jerusalem. And it's going to be a spectacular building. It's going to be massive. And it's going to be the place where God's people come to worship the one true and living God. And so some of this, obviously, this passage seems like, well, God is obviously talking about the next one in line. God is going to raise up Solomon after David to come along and build this temple and establish you know, his name and, and all of these kinds of things. And it seems very much like that. And he even says, when he commits iniquity, I'm going to discipline him. In fact, when Solomon finishes the temple, this is what he says in 1 Kings 8.20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So even Solomon looks at the promise that God made to David and says, Check, 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 and check. I've done it. It has been fulfilled. And there is great hope that Solomon is the one to be the Savior of God's people, to lead them permanently to rest from all their enemies and to lead them back into the Garden of Eden, as it were. But what God is promising here is to establish David's line forever. Do you know where Solomon is right now? Do you know where the body of Solomon is right now? In the ground. Solomon's dead. How can Solomon lead us forever into peace forever when he's dead? What God is promising is something far greater than what Solomon could ever accomplish. He's not promising to give them temporary rest from their enemies. Yes, the enemies exist. They're out there. They're beyond the walls. But you know what? I'm going to give you rest. They won't come and attack you. That's not what he's promising. He's promising to have the, all their enemies, all the enemies of God's people vanquished forever. There will never be another enemy ever threaten your life. Well, how could he possibly accomplish this? Well, Solomon is going to fail spectacularly. His heart is going to be led into idolatry of all kinds, and he's going to be far away from the Lord by the time he dies. 
When Rehoboam, his son, comes onto the throne, he's not only going to fail spectacularly, but the whole nation of Israel is going to be divided under his watch. All the way down, you take one king after another through the line of David. They almost go from bad to worse, with few exceptions. Until eventually you get down to one of the very last ones of them in the land, and that is Jehoiakim, who eventually leads all the people of Israel, not only into idolatry, but then into some 70 years of slavery in Babylon. So when the people are at the lowest of the low, when things could not get any darker, when they're in slavery, in bondage in a foreign country, in the darkness of Babylon, there is this question that comes to the mind of God's people. What about, what about those promises that God made to David? What, what happened to those? What happened to the whole, no king's always going to be on the, on the throne? What, what, what happened to the whole rest for all time? We, we had the temple, and now the temple's been destroyed. It was decimated by Babylon. What, what happened to all those promises? Has God failed on his promise? Well, then come the prophets in the Old Testament. And they look back at this passage in 2 Samuel 7, 1-17, and they think to themselves, wait a second. Something greater is being promised here than merely something Solomon could deliver. God had something much bigger in mind than something a mere son of David could accomplish. So the prophets come along with passages like Isaiah 11, and as tempted as I am to read the entire chapter of chapter 11, I'm just going to read the first 10 verses. It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie together and the lion shall eat straw like, a, like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. You understand what the prophets are looking back at the promise that God made to David and said, oh, oh, wait. This is something far greater than Solomon could ever deliver. The kind of kingdom that God is promising through the line of David is one where all evil is set right. 
It's not just that you have protection from your enemies. It's that enemies all around are vanquished. What's the enemy of the nursing child who's playing out in the yard? Well, is it not the cobra? Well, when this king comes, he will set it so right that the nursing child can play over the hole of the cobra and not be bitten. Over the adder's den and not be struck dead. This kind of king will set right all the things that were gone wrong. This is not just a king to lead a small people in a place in time, in a corner of history. No, this is a king to come to lead all of humanity. Everyone who is held captive under death and under sin to, hold, to lead all of them to freedom, to give them peace, and to give them hope. God makes this promise to David, and it's, what, a thousand years later that we find this promise coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who not only lives a perfect life, but then goes to the cross and suffers a sinner's death for you. This is how you can actually come into eternal life, the kind of life that is being promised by this king. Is that Jesus of Nazareth, who was of the line of David, came not only to the throne, not only to occupy the throne for a brief moment in time, but He actually came to live a perfect life and then go to the cross and suffer there on the cross the wrath of God for you and for me. And then all of the righteous rewards that He earned in His life, He now graciously gives to those who respond to Him in faith, strictly by His grace. So God makes this terrific promise to David. But you understand that it's not until Christ that this promise finds its true fulfillment. But do you understand that if you back up, the original promise was made to Abraham a thousand years before David. Do you understand it took a thousand years to see that promise honed down to a single line? And then the promise was made to David and it took a thousand years for that promise to see the beginning of its fulfillment in Christ. Now, one thing you can say about God is He's patient. God makes this terrific promise and it finds its fulfillment not in Solomon as Solomon may have thought but in Christ. So it leads the author of Hebrews in 1 verse 5 to say, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The author of Hebrews is looking back at the Davidic covenant and saying that was about Jesus. Or Gabriel comes to Mary, and she, he, says to, he says to Mary, and he will reign, this is the child that's in her womb, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his, of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the Davidic covenant. He's saying the Davidic covenant is lying inside your womb. This is the one who was spoken of. Well, what is it that Abraham was actually looking for? It says in Hebrews 11.10, For he was looking forward to a city who's, that, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What was the expectation of Abraham's hope? Was it just a piece of land, prime real estate in the middle of the world? No. He was looking for eternal life. He was looking for salvation like you and like me. So how is it 
that we can see that all of the promises of God, the promises made to Abraham, the promise made to David, find their yes in Christ. It's that Christ came and fulfilled ultimately all of the things that God had ever promised to the people of old. All the things that they were looking for find their yes in Christ. So what does that mean for me? Finally we get there. What does that mean for me? That was a promise made to David a thousand years before Christ, three thousand years before me. What on earth does that promise have to do with little old me here in Tuscaloosa, Alabama? Christian, God is faithful to his promises. He has not forgotten about you. The temptation that we fall into time and again is that we look at our life and we see our suffering and we think to ourselves, well, no one sees me. No one knows what I'm going through. Will there ever be relief to this suffering? And when we go back into the Old Testament and we see a promise made to Abraham, and then Abraham goes through dark days ahead of him without a child, God is faithful to his promise. And then we see a thousand years later, he comes and narrows that down to David. And he says to David, this is a fulfillment of what I promised to Abraham. We know he is faithful to his promise. And then he makes more promises to David. And we see a thousand years later before it finally comes to fruition in Christ, where he dies for the sins of his people. And he brings, he raises up a whole body, promising them eternal life. We realize God is faithful to his promise. What are the chances that you escaped his notice? It's not going to happen. God is faithful to his promise. And so the encouragement to you is to hold on to the hope as we live by faith that the world does get dark. That after the promise of David, all of the people of Israel were led into captivity in Babylon. Were led into slavery. Has God forgotten about us? Has He left us out here to die? The answer is no. He remembered His promise. And he brought them into safety. But not only that, he gave to them salvation in Christ. So how do we then remember that God is faithful? Well, whether we're in the pit of despair or whether we're in the highest of highs, we have to take inventory of our life. We have to think of all the things that God has provided for us. And as you do, you will see how faithful he has actually been to you over the years. And sometimes when we're in the depths of despair, can I be honest with you? Sometimes when we're in the lowest of the low, the, the amount of inventory we have to take over our lives is the most minute details. I have a heart that is continuing to beat. That breath is from God. It's a provision of God. He does not need anything from me. He, no, in fact, He has provided for me everything. Everything. 
And if he has provided for me everything in the breath in my lungs, the heartbeat in my chest, everything that I have or don't have even is directly from his hand. So how is it that I can utter, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, utter my amen to God for his glory is that I look at everything in my life as direct provision from him built strictly on the promises that he gave to me in Christ. It is explicitly because you are His that He has given those things to you. If you're fortunate enough to be on top of the world, to be in the stratosphere, and you're happy right now, and, and you're, you're thinking, well, you know, I don't really have anything in my life that, I, that I'm really sad about or mad about, then let me take you into the stratosphere that what God has in store for His people make even the happy times seem like suffering. You understand that? That what happens when Christ returns and the dead are raised and we dwell forever with Him in His kingdom, it's going to make all the things that you experience now, all the many joys in this life, appear like suffering. So, if you are here and you are currently outside of Christ, I want you to think about something. Just consider something for a moment. That throughout time, 3,000, 4,000 years of God's promises to His people, He has been faithful. Peasant group of slaves come out of Egypt and occupy prime real estate in the world. How does that happen? But that God is faithful. How does it happen that 2,000 years after that, we see the people not only in the land, but Christ come and give to them salvation? What does God's faithfulness to His people say? It says that judgment is sure. When He says He's going to come in righteousness and judge the earth and strike down the wicked, He does not mean He's going to give His people temporary relief from all their enemies. He means He is going to judge the wicked once and for all with eternity in hell. And I would encourage you to repent. Because here's what Christ also offers you. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 He says this, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How is it that you, unbelieving, can have rest from the enemies of death, from the enemy of hell, from the enemy of sin? How is it that you can rest from your labors, it's by resting in Christ as your Savior, as your King and Savior. Come to Him by faith, repent of your sins, and follow Him for your life and find salvation for your souls. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.